All right, uh, let's let's get started, and we'll wait for other other people to join. But um, Lionel, thank you for uh, well, thank you for writing a wonderful essay for our seventh issue of uh, Sapir, which is uh, devoted entirely to the subject of cancellation, cancel culture. You wrote um, a kind of a surprisingly positive essay called "Can the Good Guys." win the culture war, um, which um, in itself is a little bit countercultural because we're, I think in the last few years, we've been so overwhelmed by what you might call wokeism that it feels like um, a tsunami uh, sweeping a coastal, coastal town and destroying um, everything uh, before it. Um, I also want to plug your book, which is just out about six weeks ago or so, um, Abominations. It's, uh, I don't know if, if, uh, if our audience can, can look, see the cover. It's a little kitten, presumably you, uh, in, a, in a bear, uh, what looks like a bear trap or something like that. The subtitle is Selected Essays from a Career of Courting uh, Self-Destruction, which um, having known you for many years, I think, is a is a fair description of um, of of your career, but I, I want to get started on on the essay uh, you wrote for us, um, and and the sources of your uh, relative not not certainty but relative optimism that um, Western civilization might yet survive the plague of cancellations and what has been successively called political correctness or wokeism and reemerge with its sort of um, liberal values uh, intact. What are the, what are your reasons for, for, for hope? Well, I should clarify that my optimism on this point is a little forced, but we've had so few victories that I think pushing pushing the program is probably a good idea that we should we should take some satisfaction in in our success uh i think the irony of this whole business of um woke takeover uh is is that we've already won that is that on a on a popular level uh these are not uh popular positions. Uh, most people believe in the reality of bi biological sex. Um, there is a massive majority of people in the United States who don't even believe in affirmative action, um, much less in the hyper-racialized cultural environment that we are living in. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole woke agenda is is obnoxious to ordinary Americans. And since I'm talking to you from London, I would say also to ordinary Brits. Where, it, it, where it's also surprisingly powerful, is it not? Yes. And it's all taken from the United States. And the, the, the UK has become slavishly imitative uh, and of, often of the worst things about American culture. And this is one of them. So there's been a massive woke takeover of British universities. And British universities, once upon a time, not long ago, uh, were one of the strongest uh, cultural 
products that the British had to purvey to the world. I mean, Oxford and Cambridge, you couldn't get a better brand and they're busy destroying themselves with this same poison. But so, so I'm, I'm just observing the irony that uh, we're talking about maybe eventually having victory, but it's victory over a minority. And in, in the big picture, we, we already have victory. You know, we, we already have popular support for common sense politics and, and common sense views of, of, of sex and race, which are the big, which are the big red button, button issues. So, so the real problem is this tiny minority that has a, a death grip on the media and, and a whole range of institutions, including, I'm afraid, in the United States right now, government. So, so how did this minority become so powerful? What is, what, is their, what, what is their secret power that they were able to essentially assert a set of radical um, uh, and often preposterous views on um, mainstream institutions in media, publishing, academia, you just mentioned uh, the government, increasingly business. How, how did, how was this, uh, uh, how is it that a relatively small number of people could impose themselves on so many others? Well, you know, as well as I do, uh, which is, you know, first off, it's, it's a little bit of a mystery. But all, as much as I can put together, it mostly hails from universities. And all of these people in positions of power and influence went, went to elite universities, which, which were taken over, I think, starting in the 60s you know, with, with my generation. So it's partly my collective fault. Yeah. Um, but it really took off in the nineties because I suppose that my generation became the professors and, uh, and this kind of um, radical thinking became fashionable. I mean, I think we're really dealing with fashion, cultural fashion. And these people became the trendsetters and they, they did, they took over the universities and started teaching this stuff. And because it started out constrained to the universities, we didn't pay very much attention. And I think it was uh, Andrew Sullivan who wrote an essay, must've been around 2010 or something saying, you know, this stuff used to be constrained to the universities, but it isn't anymore the virus has got out. It's kind of like the Wuhan virology lab. <laughs> Which so, you just, that, that itself is a, is, a, is, a, is a radical and in some quarters considered a racist thought. Um, although there's a fantastic piece, I'm saying this digressively from ProPublica, which lays out an extraordinarily powerful circumstantial case for the um, um, laboratory origins of uh, a virus, uh, which I commend to people's attention because you are unlikely to hear about it, uh, uh, to hear about it uh, elsewhere. But I wanna touch on this point. Um, 
Many years ago, Midge Dector wrote a famous, I guess it was a book called Liberal Parents, Radical Children. And of course, she was speaking about your generation of um, baby boomers who revolted against the, the, the parents who had emerged from the era of the Great Depression and, and the Second World War. So as you said, this, this does go back all the way to the 60s. But nonetheless, the generation, your generation, that became um, university professors, uh, administrators, uh, heads of publishing houses, uh, um, leaders of major media organizations, were for the most part liberals who believed in free speech, believed in the kind of feminism that uh, kind of came to the fore in the 1970s and, uh, and 1980s um, uh, of, of women being responsible for their own choices for, for, for better, or, or, uh, uh, better or worse, who at least even if they were liberal in their politics, subscribed to the idea that it was important to hear from the other side and give the other side its view, that publishers were in the business of pushing the boundaries of what was possible to say rather than reining it in. And yet these sort of conventional liberals all seem to have been the ones that folded the fastest um, because cancel culture can't operate without coward culture. These two things are symbiotic. Absolutely. I've said that over and over again. And that the real problem is, is not on Twitter. You know, it is people in power listening to Twitter. It is people in power not, not realizing they're wearing Dorothy's shoes, right? Right. Right. They, they, it, it, you have to have someone in authority to fire someone as, as a result of something that they said that didn't go down well with the, the rabble. Um, if someone in authority just sits there and says, well, you know, too bad you don't like it. We're going to back our man or our woman um, and we will survive this. Then there would be no cancel culture. You know, cancel culture is is about capitulation to the mob. And so I really blame uh, people in authority, older, established people who 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 are not especially vulnerable to use a fashionable word, um, to, and, and I think the, the biggest mystery of all, therefore, is where did the, all this cowardice come from? You know, and, and that's where you're really talking about a larger kind of amorphous culture. I'm calling it a cancel culture is probably appropriate because we have installed a quasi-Maoist paranoia that if you are not on the right, the perceived correct side of absolutely every issue, then then they're going to have your head. And, you know, th that's very disturbing to have installed in a so-called liberal democracy. So, but um, venture a guess, why, why so much cowardice? Why the plague of cowardice? Well, I guess cowardice is contagious. Uh, in this, I, I think what we're seeing 
we've probably we've we've seen it over and over again but but this is at scale and it's ultimately a a failure of the capacity for independent thought so i mean i i often listen to these people talk and they all use the same words you know they all say people of color and um and and i think did you think you invented this stuff i mean why do you all sound the same why do you all express yourself exactly the same way and and it's this rank imitation and 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 unthinkingness and and conformity you know i suppose we could be conforming to something else as it happens we're conforming to this i mean i found covid for example very disturbing because suddenly you had the entire population especially over here there was basically no pushback saying okay well oh right yesterday we could leave the house but now we can't right um yesterday we had all these civil rights that we thought that nobody could take away from this us but actually now we don't have them anymore oh okay it was this this total rollover um and ultimately yes this is a failure of independent thought maybe we're not even talking about western culture maybe we're talking about what people are like what most people are like they don't think for themselves they, well, they accept I, I, I perceived would, I would wisdom back in, in this way which is that um you know this kind of quasi bolshevism uh that is wokeism which is a small minority of people who are ideologically extremely um certain have mm -hmm. developed a vocabulary, a worldview, and a and have honed a capacity for shaming others, discovered that the people on the other side had no real beliefs to speak of, which is to say, people sort of dimly thought of themselves as good liberals who subscribe to uh, ideas about free speech and intellectual uh, pluralism, viewpoint diversity, um, a certain kind of tolerance, but had never really spent a minute trying to develop those as not only a set of values that stood for things, but also a set of values that stood against things, right? So the moment you accuse a nice liberal of being a racist or a something phobe, right, they collapse in a puddle because they, they, they've never been able to articulate for themselves, well, you know, hang on a second, I actually stand for a set of values that are um, coherent and defensible and, and need to be sort of articulated and, and understood in a wide way. Every, every liberal capitulation to some woke mob um, happened on account of someone who I am certain could not explain to himself why what was happening was so awful, right, was so wrong they capitulate it seemed easy because they had no no vocabulary no real set of ideas against which to um counter what wokeism was 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 offering so they sort of left themselves ideologically or intellectually or philosophically naked in the face of the assault um and so it wasn't kind of it wasn't entirely surprising the only people who seemed to be inured to it and where cancel culture was not operating in at least quite the same way 
were with people who had moved over and become conservatives. I mean, not necessarily, uh, you know, Trumpian conservatives or even Reagan conservatives, but in some ways thought of themselves already in opposition to mainstream liberal culture. Is that your, do you agree or am I wrong in, that, in thinking that way? Yeah, I, I generally concur with that. Um, I think that uh, classical liberals perceive themselves as being ideologically adjacent yeah. to the woke version of what seemed like the same general viewpoint. And that's that made them, and I'm afraid I now have to use the third person plural, not not we. <laughs> um, that made them uh, easily captured because these people were using the same issues that liberals have conventionally cared about, especially race and and any kind of discrimination on the basis of of uh, sexual preference or or you know being gay or all the all the all the same issues that liberals have been expressing concern over um this other crowd uh was also uh, paying lip service to so it seemed as if you were all the same and I, I think that adjacency was misleading because one of the big differences is an absolute um not lack of interest so much as utter disbelief in free speech and that is that is a a, a liberals of uh, crowning value i mean that's where the word liberal comes from is is the same root as liberty so i think that 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 made you know american democrats uh, maybe slightly leftist American Democrats, uh, defenseless. Right. And the only the only way that you could defend against these people, and this is still the case, is basically to declare yourself on the other side. And um, people like me, and I am, you know, I'm a registered Democrat. I've been a Democrat my whole life. Um, now feel rather homeless, but. Uh, the only way that I have been able to handle this in a kind of um, a geometric sense is to accept that I have been repositioned to the right of center. And I, I mean that in the passive construction. I didn't do it. I just refused to move with the tide. I stayed exactly where I was saying the same things I've always said but lo and behold, I look around me and all the people with whom I agree are being categorized as conservative. So, you know, a long time ago, I stopped fighting that. Uh, it, to me, it's not the biggest insult in the world, especially now that liberal has been so horribly bes besmirched. So if they, if they got to call you something, go ahead, call me conservative. So um, I notice. I just want to... Uh mention, uh, I notice people are starting to populate the Q&A field with questions. And I just want to encourage those who are listening in to, if you if, if something, uh, if there's something you'd like to ask Lionel, to put the question in the Q and A function, and I'll try to get to them starting in in uh, a little later uh, in this hour. But I want to talk, uh, Lionel. I want to ask you about you as uh, a writer. I'm sure everyone who's in on this call 
uh, knows that you are a celebrated uh, novelist. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin was is probably easily one of the 20 most important books of the last uh, 20 years, maybe 10 uh, most important books of the last uh, 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 20 years. And your sort of um, coming out politically, so to speak, although you've been writing about international affairs and many other subjects for a long time, happened uh, in Australia about six years ago, where you very provocatively uh, donned a, uh, a sombrero, a sombrero uh, Mexican uh, charro hat, um, and gave a talk about cultural appropriation, which uh, became a kind of a landmark in, in this discussion. And what does this kind of wokeism and this war on so-called cultural appropriation mean for the life of, um, of, mean for literature, the life of literary imagination? Where does it, where does it lead us to? Uh... I think the whole movement has been very hard on literature, partly because the publishing industry has been completely taken over by women. And this doesn't speak very well for my sex, but uh, women don't like conflict. I'm, I'm going to overgeneralize here because I probably do like conflict. <laughs> um, they don't like conflict. They tend to value harmony. Uh, I think they are especially prey to copycattery, you know, thinking in groups. Uh, they want to be thought of as good. I don't, I don't especially either. So th these are horribly overgeneralizing, but um, fighting back against this stuff in publishing would require some steel right and we're just not seeing it so on the on your on the editorial front it's very hard to find someone who's going to stick up for you if you're not uh touting the company line the other thing that's uh, been disheartening for me considering that people attracted to my profession are supposed to be so creative and they're they're mavericks. They they don't fit in with other people. They they stick out. They think outside the box. Um, they make things up. They push the boundaries. Well, this is you know that's that those are the conventions. But actually, I have found that most of my colleagues who almost universally hew left politically um, have gone almost completely along with this stuff. And I find it perplexing because it's so much not in our self interest because it's all about control, it's all about conformity, it's, it's about getting you to uh, restrict your imagination to basically your own life in whatever little group you happen to belong to or, or set of groups. Um, you know, so it's anti-imagination, uh, it's, it naturally produces horrible books. And, you know, this is a loss, for readers, and I am a reader, so I feel the loss as a reader, not not just as a writer. But I don't understand why anyone who who writes novels uh, would want to uh, subscribe to a set of rules, not of their own devising, uh, that hems in 
what you can and cannot write about and how and what words you can use. I mean, I, I don't want to be told that I can't use the word slave. I have to say enslaved person. I see absolutely no logic to that. I don't see anything more insulting about a, about slave rather than enslaved person. That means exactly the same thing, and slave is shorter. And this whole idea of you can't use nouns for people because you are reducing them to some some small aspect of their lives, or it's it's insensible, right? I mean, that's like saying, well, you can't call me an American because I'm more than an American. It's, it endangers language. And this kind of Nazi approach to, to what you can and cannot say, it's utterly antithetical to, to writing anything. And I am mystified why I have had so little company in fighting back against it uh, in literary circles. Now, you know, I am getting a lot fewer invitations to do, do this, that, and the other literary festival than I used to. And I, I think it probably comes down to my having been so vocal politically. Uh, now, am I complaining? Not really. <laughs> I've been to a lot of literary festivals, and in some ways, uh, I'm lucky not to necessarily be in, enticed to a bunch of drinks receptions. But... <laughs> But still, I find I find it telling about the current situation. Do you, um, to what extent, uh, do you worry that um, prizes in literature seem to be going to writers for being selected on criteria other than the merit of their work? I think that book buyers those that tiny group of people <laughs> um are on are on to the prize giving thing you'd have you'd have to be an idiot not to notice when a short list in a country that's 85% white is itself 85% non-white for example i mean people people pick it up they're you know lately prize Prize, prize shortlists are, are reliably non-white, at least female, preferably uh, has someone who's trans or at least gay or non-binary on it. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's been composed and not of the books that were necessarily the best books. And you're never supposed to observe this, by the way. It's it's all tacit, and um, you know I've talked to editors who who will allude to it under their breaths, but would never go public. Um, but the the real loss is to ironically to the prize itself because they have discredited what the prize means, and once the readership picks up that they are simply being force fed of uh, uh, a politically correct list, uh, they're not going to take the prize seriously, and they're not necessarily going to buy the winner's book. So it, it it doesn't actually help publishing in the end at all. In fact, ironically, it doesn't help uh, minorities. It doesn't help it doesn't help minority writers because 
once you get on a short list and you you have what are called over here protected characteristics, um, then you don't necessarily get credit for having written a, a good book. And, you know, maybe you did write a great book. Maybe it's a bloody brilliant book. Yet, because of the way these shortlists are being curated, um, then, then it doesn't appear that you got there because of your own excellence. And that's, that's a terrible thing. It's the same problem with affirmative action across the board. Um, I want you to say another word about that because affirmative action is top of mind here in the United States on account of the Supreme Court. But um, one of the surprises for me is that uh, you notice publishing houses publishing, devoting huge advances to uh, books uh, that are almost certain not going to um, uh, sell particularly well and make up for that advance. And I hear from friends also in the publishing industry, it's always sotto voce, it's always kind of like, you know, just between us, cone of silence, but they are in the process of actually driving themselves out of business by refusing to sign authors who they know will be commercially successful while devoting vast sums of money to authors they are fairly likely are not going to are not going to be widely widely read and so you have an industry which seems to me kind of in the process of uh of suicide of of financial suicide by devoting itself to to stuff that they're they know their audience base isn't uh isn't interested in so Again, how is this happening? And are there any sort of points of light? Because you do have authors who want books that are um, uh, uh, relate to their concerns and are more readable and more interesting and and you know livelier and less less uh, hemmed in by by political jargon. So how how is the publishing industry doing this? Well, I think. You're right that this is a kind of larger death by vanity. Yeah. In fact, there was a there's an article in the Times in the last couple of weeks about Hollywood. Did you read that one? No, um, I did not. Well, I should read my own paper. Hollywood has done the same thing, yeah. but it it isn't lasting very long because all these wokey films nobody wants to see, and they're huge commercial flops. And when you have a commercial flop in Hollywood, it's on a completely different scale than in publishing. I mean, you're, you're talking about millions, often tens of millions of dollars that just go down the plug hole. So uh, <laughs> because there's so much more at stake, Hollywood isn't, isn't going to stay there. It's like, well, we tried that. We tried, you know, our Muslim superhero and nobody wanted to watch it. So we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> It just seems to be taking publishing a much longer time to get over it. But at a certain point, you know, the the com commercial money people have to move in and say, look, you people are losing a lot of money here. Uh, you're fired. <laughs> right. You're uh, because. Publishing is currently constructed, it is it is not a, supposed to be a vanity project. It's not, it's supposed to be a commercial one. And 
many of these decisions, as you observe, don't make any commercial sense. In fact, what I pointed out in the essay I wrote for you is that where a lot of publishers are missing a trick is that there is huge amounts of money to be made in anti-woke books. You know, someone like Douglas Murray has made a tiny fortune on anti-woke. They're pretty good books too. Yeah. But that's what that's what sells. I mean, who wants to read another book telling you that you're a racist? Um, so how are you still standing? How have you survived uh, um, all of these uh, essentially assaults and attempted cancellations? Well, I have primarily survived because the people who publish me have backed me up. Yeah. I'm fortunate uh, in having a column in the British magazine, The Spectator. Um, it is a right of center, if, if not very center. I, I think it's quite centrist. But they don't tell me what to write. They've never rejected a column. They hardly ever ask me to revise a line. You know, there's a there's a downside to that. It means that that if I get myself in, into trouble, it's all my fault. <laughs> but um, they back me up, and likewise, uh, my current publisher Harper Collins has uh, never appreciably censored me, never subjected me to a sensitivity reader, um, and uh, has never, you know, cowered in the corner and said, "Oh, you know, that thing you wrote the other day." it made us feel terrified of being associated with you. So I'm afraid that we are going to break your contract. And you know that, and that is happening. Um, but it isn't happening to me. But I have to say, I have to credit the people, the grown-ups who are backing me up and who are publishing my work more than I credit myself. And do you think that this, I mean, again, getting back to the theme of your essay, do you think a, a corner might be being turned, not only because financially the incentives are clearly moving in a very different uh, 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 direction, but um, a certain kind of exhaustion with constantly, um, I'll say something politically incorrect, kowtowing to politically correct pieties? Well, I, I got exhausted by this stuff a long time ago, uh, as I'm sure you did as well. Um, I, I am surprised so far at the endurance that people are showing for this crap. Um, I mean, obviously the, the essay is, is asking the same question I am asked constantly, uh, you know, have we reached peak woke yet? When is this stuff going to be over? Um, or is it, you know, or is it just going to keep getting crazier? And that that's pretty much what everyone needs to know. And that's up for grabs. I, would, I, I try to put the optimistic case because there are certainly victories to cling to. I mean, I thought that the fact that the NHS uh, in, in Britain is shutting down the uh, the gender clinic that had been warehousing uh, underage kids who are confused into transgenderism, the fact that that's been closed down and the N NHS has done a huge reversal. And rather than 
arguing for the importance of gender affirmation is now telling uh, doctors in the UK, you know, most of these kids are going to grow out of it, don't necessarily cooperate with, you know, changing their names and, and this whole social transition thing. And, you know, just wait for it to basically wait for it to go away. That is an enormous 180. And I think, I think that's very promising. Um, but it, it, it isn't over yet. And I am, I am hopeful in the big picture. I just don't know how big the picture is. You know, that all revolutions fail. They either fail through failure or they fail through success. And then they kind of, when they succeed, they, they contain the seeds of their own destruction or they, if they survive, then they adapt to pragmatic requirements and reality and you you know, and then they become basically not a revolutionary anymore. Um, you know, so I, 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 I don't, I don't think that we're stuck with this stuff forever. And I do think it is a, a kind of first world problem where we're, we're obsessing over pronouns and, and what we call minority groups next or whatever. It's very focused on language and, you know, eventually, you, you know, the Ukrainian situation blows up in World War III or something else. But we, we, we have a nut, we have a big enough real problem that we can't afford this kind of entertainment. In some ways, it's an entertainment. So and I think that we will win in the big picture. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing for me is that, um, uh, you know, from essentially from week to week, I've always thought, well, is this going to be the column that gets me fired? Um, and uh, what's changed in the last uh, few years is that I've stopped caring whether it is. So, <laughs> and I think it's because you realize that there's a life outside of uh, institutions that have subjected themselves to these kinds of strictures that, you know, it, it, it's not the end all and be all. And so the only, ultimately the only cancellation uh, that is, is taking place are institutions will wind up canceling themselves uh, while other people find a way to, to, to thrive in the professions they, 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 they. Well, I think you're seeing that in uni universities and that's one reason that the Supreme Court, court case uh, with Harvard is so important um, that in bending over backwards to vaunt their virtuous racial bona fides, uh, universities at the top tier are in danger of not being top tier universities. They're in danger of so reducing their standards that a graduation from Harvard doesn't mean anything anymore because- it Hasn't been not, for a long time, but yes, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's what people are buying when they want to go to Harvard. It's a brand and gradually you are, besmirching and degrading the brand uh, in, in, in the interest of a particular advertising campaign. And I, I think that it could begin to genuinely backfire. Well, I think that's exactly, actually that's exactly what's happening. And you're seeing the prestige of universities like Yale, Yale Law School, which has um, been uh, the site of various sort of uh, woke uh, eruptions um, really take uh, really take a, a reputational hit um, 
uh, in the last in the last few years, which is which is stunning. I want to get to the questions from our very patient audience members in the twenty odd minutes that we have left, and I'm going to start with Mark uh, uh, Neubauer. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, where did wokeism originate? In other words, is it a reaction to what was perceived as racist, sexist, and other attitudes of the past in religion, politics, or education? Want to answer that? I don't think it was as clean as that. I don't think it was that reactive. And if you know, the weird thing is that the degree to which it was was and is reactive is that it's reacting to the success of liberal policies and liberal viewpoints and not its failure. So that as, as the society has become only less racist, this movement becomes more obsessed with racism. As we've become only more accepting of different kinds of sexuality, the and and more uh, genuinely uh, equal in in terms of the way we treat the two different sexes. The more we enjoy success on these fronts, the more this movement is obsessed with with exactly these issues in any way in which we we might be failing. So it's 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 almost like it's reacting to the loss of cause. That's an interesting answer. Uh, Linda G uh, Geller Schwartz asks, to what extent has the concept of safe, safe space done the real damage uh, to liberal open discussion? Well, I think the whole safe space thing is insulting and I don't understand why students and young people in general would want a world in which they're perceived as so fragile that they need to hide in the closet. I mean, it, and and then of course, the this is a, a, it's it's creating a market for safety. It's it says it seems to me that the safe space it came before the demand for safety. It's it is molding. The the bottom line is that this whole thing about fragility and and being worried about causing harm you know being injured by exposure to uh horrible viewpoints it's all false it's it, it it is emotionally false people who claim to be harmed they're not they're they don't feel pain they feel a sense of victory and power this is all about the weaponization of harm this is about this is this is you hurt me, you bastard. I'm going to get you, and and or by claiming that you hurt me. <laughs> None of these people really want a so-called safe space. They want to take over and all space by calling it safe. It's not that they feel endangered. It's that they want to make sure they can exert power over other people and shut them up. So that's nothing. That's that's anything but vulnerable. That 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 has to do. This is all about the exertion of power. Joe Rosenberg asks: Give us a few examples um, that we are on the cusp of change in this woke culture. 
Um, you know, it doesn't go down very, very well politically. I do not think that um, Joe Biden's administration's uh, kowtowing, use the word, um, to um, to this ideology on all, all kinds of fronts has made him a popular president. And I, I think it has uh, damaged him for the midterms. I think it damages his prospects for 2024 should he foolishly choose to run again. Uh, it, you know, as we started out observing, this stuff is not popular and he's done himself considerable harm and his larger administration has done itself and the Democratic Party considerable harm by allowing themselves to be captured by their own far left. And I think that that's a good sign that it doesn't help. It's not winning, literally. Um, Cliff Lamb asks, if wokeism is a quasi-Bolshevist movement, then religion is the enemy. Is wokeism responsible for rising anti-Semitism from the left? And is wokeism a reworking of a communist ideology? I mean, it definitely has Marxist elements because it's obsessed with equality, which it has renamed equity, which, you know, they would not even contest means equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity. And that is a Marxist concept. You know, we all have to have the same things. And we, we it doesn't matter how much effort we make. We deserve the same position in society, the same amount of money. Uh, that's straight Marxism. But what was the earlier part of the question? The earlier part of the question was about the relation between wokeism and anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, there are two elements to that. Uh, I, I think the the far left is often guilty of anti-Semitism. It's partly because um, Jews lost their status as a victim group, and now they're just white, and being white is bad. Whiteness is the source of all evil. So Jews get thrown in on that. Uh, the 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 left will often accept the stereotype that all Jews are rich and that makes them that that further demonizes the group. And then there's the third contributor, which is the having, you know, thrown in their lot with the Palestinians uh, in Israel uh, and, and therefore the Jews are the enemy on that front. And somehow between all three of those things, there is very little sympathy for, for, for Jews on the hard left. Um, okay, Alan Morris, I'm skipping over some of the questions that sort of you, you've, you've answered already, some of them connected to Kanye West. Alan Morris asks, there seems to be a convergence between those on the right who see American or perhaps Western society as becoming perverse and morally degenerate, and the left who see it as inherently and irredeemably racist and oppressive. Is there a possibility of regaining a center that holds? I'd like to think so. We are, we are in the grip of this weird extreme polarization. And uh, I don't think that we're gonna get past that until we get past Trump. And uh, at least in the United States. So, I mean, the, most Americans do occupy the center and they don't get very much expression in 
the media. Uh, and they, they often aren't even given political candidates who represent them because it's the shriller elements that end up getting the nominations. Uh, and, and I think that this is a direct result of the kind of extreme us versus them that we've seen post-Trump. It was developing before Trump, but I think that he is an accelerant and it would help to live in a post-Trump era. Um, I Let's just put it this way. I'm really hoping that he eats a lot more hamburgers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Mainline so that cholesterol, baby. <laughs> Sonia Michel uh, um, asks, uh, the critique of wokeism runs the danger of becoming an orthodoxy in itself. Somehow critics like yourself need to make it clear that you do not reject the claims and gains of the civil rights and early women's movement, if in fact you don't, and thus provide a space for people like me who are also very troubled by much of political correctness, but certainly don't want to be identified with Donald Trump. To some extent, you've answered that, but, but uh, address it a little further if you, if you don't mind. Well, you know, it used to be uh, when discussing any of this stuff that you had to start out by hedging and explaining that, you know, you've always been a feminist and um, you supported the women's movement. And, you, you know, my father was uh, uh, part of the uh, Martin Luther King civil rights movement, as he was actually. Um, all that. And then by the time you finished hedging, you'd run out of space and there you couldn't say anything. So I don't usually waste a lot of time saying that stuff especially since the um, it doesn't work because with the wokesters, they, they just think, oh, that's just white fragility, right? You, you, you know, you're, you, and, and as for the feminism, uh, feminism has become evil because if you believe in protecting women's rights, then you're anti-trans. So that doesn't do you any good. And walking around saying, well, I'm not a racist. Well, that doesn't work because all you have to do is say, I'm not a racist. And that brands you as a racist. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, like most people, um, I back the civil rights movement. Like most people, I believe in the essential equality of both sexes. But uh, I think I'm willing to take that as a given now. So Anne uh, Choman, Choman asks, the source of this woke culture is in the universities. Uh, woke culture is so deeply entrenched in universities and even schools now, especially in California, it seems impossible to get this ideology out of our education system. It is self-perpetuating as today's students are the next generation's teachers. How can we put an end to this indoctrination culture in our universities in schools and schools? Oh God, I have no idea. Honestly, I think this is the biggest problem and I don't know how to solve it. And it's 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 got worse because it's now also in the public schools. Probably, oh, private schools too. It's just, oh. it's now in elementary school, middle school, high school. And it's partly because these teachers are all a result of these teachers' colleges, which have also bought into the same ideology. So it's it there is this constant feed feedback loop uh and now we're we're putting kids into indoctrination you know when they're five years old 
And this is a horrible experiment. I'm not quite sure what comes out the other side. I would like to think that uh, a proportion of those kids will throw it all over and have had enough by the time they get out of university because they've been force fed all this stuff. But uh, that takes a certain kind of backbone and capacity for independent thought, which I have noted is in short supply. Well, one answer I would offer, I'd offer two just to, um, to supplement your answer. Um, number one, at universities, um, summer school programs like TICFA uh, are uh, great resources for um, getting around the indoctrination factories. Uh, TICFA does it very well. It could be done at scale. My sense is also that there's less wokeism in religious institutions, religious schools. Um, so if you can send your child to a, a Jewish day school, or if you're not Jewish to a Christian school, um, they do not have the same sorts of, I mean, they have other beliefs, uh, which you may or, to which you may or may not subscribe, but not necessarily this set of, of woke beliefs. And then of course, as we found out um, in my conversation with Bethany Mandel, um, there's homeschooling, which is, um, hmm. which is doable. Um, now, uh, let me ask. If a lot of work. A lot of work, right? Not uh, obviously more easily said than done. Jonathan Siegel says he's a management side employment lawyer and homeless Democrat. In employment world, the woke positions are often protected by Title VII so that opposition may be seen as discriminatory, fighting it, but at my peril. Um, and then he has nice words for us. So any thoughts to Jonathan? Um, sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, the way that this indoctrination has reached the corporate world is in some ways the most dismaying recent development because Employees are being forced to take these anti-bias training, which, at the end of which you're more racist than you were going in, yeah. um, and uh, having to, you know, that the, like in research when you're submitting a research grant now, you have to justify the grant by explaining how you're going to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, it's and it's hard to fight because you want the grant or you want the job and you you know you 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 need the money uh, and I think that uh, on a lot, no, number of these fronts someone has to take it to court because it should be unconstitutional. Let me ask one uh, question from Wolfgang uh, Pordzik. Um, who asks, are we concerned about potential overreach fighting wokeism? For example, state legislatures passing overly simplistic laws pushing back. Oh, it's definitely a danger yeah. uh, going too far in the other direction and therefore becoming illiberal and too controlling in the opposite direction. Um, I am comfortable with state legislatures uh, passing uh, laws that uh, 
don't allow medical establishments to give uh, cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers and life-changing unalterable surgery to minors. Okay. I think, I think that is protective legislation. Once you turn 18, you can do anything with your body that you like, but I think it's worth saying before then this, you are not capable. You are, you, you are not a grown up yet. You are not capable of making decisions of, of that scale for yourself. And there, there, there are other things you don't get to do when you're 18 either. And so there's, there's plenty of precedent. Uh, I think that in terms of the, the, the laws that have been passed trying to control the curriculum, the sorts of books that can be in school libraries, I'm, I'm, I'm entirely against that. And um, I, I'm even not wholly comfortable with the um, critical race theory stuff and saying you can't teach that either, which of course liberals claim is just saying you can't teach kids about slavery, which it is not. But uh, I could see requiring a set, a range of perspectives on these issues, in, which might include the tenets of critical race, race theory. That's one way of looking at things. But I, I don't think that legislature becoming very, very controlling and trying to, in, in, a, in a legal framework, uh, restrict, restricting teachers and directing their curricula, I think that's a wrong way to go. Lionel, it's wonderful to have you on. Thanks for joining us from London. Your essay is uh, fantastic, as uh, are all the essays in uh, this collection of, of books. Lionel didn't even put me up to, to promote her book. but I No, no, I did not. Because uh, it's, 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 it's such a wonderful uh, uh, book, and it's always um, bracing and delightful to talk to you. The issue is cancellation. It's the seventh issue of Sapir, published by the Maimonides Fund. Um, we're having a lot of fun with it, and we are aiming to be uh, intellectually inclusive, uh, original, uh, provocative, and, and prescriptive. And um, uh, I just want to thank everyone who joined us uh, for this uh, conversation. It's an honor for me to have a friendship now of decades with uh, Lionel Shriver, really one of the great um, literary figures um, of our time. Thanks for being a part of what we're doing. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Brett, and uh, hope to see you soon. Take care. Enjoy, enjoy the, the new government. <laughs> for now. <laughs> okay. Thanks again. <laughs>